I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Uh, today, I'm here with Evan Holiday. Evan is a real estate developer and investor with over 375 million and uh, 1,965 units of multifamily real estate developed and invested. As we said before, that number is probably bigger now, I would guess. <laughs> but um, I'll I'll stop there, Evan. And first of all, thank, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to to join me today. Yeah, likewise, Jason. Thank you for having me. I appreciate um, being here and also being able to talk about knowing your why that's one of the things I'm most passionate about. So excited for the podcast. Awesome. Yeah, me too. Um, well, why don't you just start by, you know, kind of telling my listeners, your background, a little bit about yourself and what you do, you know, obviously your numbers suggest a lot of success, but, uh, you know, kind of what, what got you there? How'd you get started? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we, our group holiday ventures, uh, we founded it three years ago. And we specialize in doing impact-driven investing, uh, specifically around attainable, affordable housing, and with a with a backdrop within multifamily and mixed-use developments. Uh, so we typically do larger-scale, 200-plus unit developments with first-floor retail. Uh, we'll do nonprofit partnerships. Uh, we'll do uh, we incorporate a lot of sustainability in, into our communities and to our developments. And we really we're really, I think what separates us from a lot of other developers is we're intentional developers, uh, meaning we take, we really take a holistic approach from day one of our development saying, how can we help the residents, help the community and help the environment all at the same time and help our investors throughout the entire process. Uh, and I think going into, you know, knowing my why, um, just briefly, because it plays into all of this is Really, I think uh, for me, my I was very fortunate. I had very loving parents, uh, and they taught me the value of really taking care of others and and helping others and loving others. And I think that's really, really a big part of has become a big part of my ethos and my big my big why. Uh, and when I when I had that why, I just didn't know what to apply it to. And originally, I thought that was being a doctor. Uh, and so going into college, I wanted to be a doctor. And then I realized it was like science and chemistry. Not my thing, uh, but I but I still wanted to help people. But I was like, nope, not being a doctor. Yeah. Uh, but I figured out very quickly. I was lucky um, that through that process, I saw this big student housing development going on at the university I was going to. I went to University of Louisville, and I saw this big fifty-five million dollar student housing above with retail and commercial below. It was just a really cool project. And I mentioned it to one of my mentors. I said, that's really cool. Like, I would love to do something like that. Just really offhand. And he's like, really? He's like, I know the developer. I'd love to introduce you. I was like, heck yeah. <laughs> and it just snowballed from there. I impressed the developer, got a bunch of people out to his groundbreaking. And that led me into the world of development. I started working for that developer, learned really like soup to nuts, uh, A to Z uh, about the development process. And I was hooked. I was like, all right, this is what I got to do. This is what I'm meant to be doing. 
but I knew I was like, but I still want to help people. And I felt like building student housing, that's luxury pricing and, you know, luxury amenities and everything's like $3,000 a month per bed. That just wasn't fulfilling for me. And so I was like, I, how can I combine my love of real estate and my love of development where I can literally build, you know, new buildings and new communities out of nothing um, with my passion for helping other people and, you know, helping others who really need help. Uh, and that's when I learned about affordable housing, impact investing, pu public-private partnerships, where we actually partner with the government. They help us uh, provide some of the funding. And in return, we're able to keep our rents at a below market basis. So families, working class families that are making on average 30 to 60 grand a year, um, which increasingly is a good majority of the United States right now, we're able to house those families and not have them be cost burdened on a daily basis with their rent. Uh, and so our communities, our, our residents are paying no more than 30% of their monthly paycheck. So the other 70% they can spend on healthcare, education, wellness, um, you know, transportation to get their kids to and from school, whatever it is. Uh, it just eases that housing burden, which more and more families are feeling today. Uh, and so once I got into that, I was hooked, started working for a developer that ended up while I was there, we grew to be the number one affordable developer in the year. Like I think it was three or four years in a row. And from there, I was like, all right, I love this. This is my passion, but how can I do it even better? How can we do it even better and do it differently? Uh, and that's when we started Holiday Ventures, really with the with the mindset of being, like I said earlier, an intentional developer, uh, where we really take a holistic approach from day one of every development, you know, from the very first time we look at a site. We think about it from a holistic approach as a team and collaborate through that. Uh, and then also, once we get our communities up and running, we really emphasize and focus in on uh, resident empowerment services. So uh, we're doing we're going to be providing life coaching to all of our communities, all of our residents at or below cost or no cost life coaching. And really with the goal of saying, how can we get our residents out of affordable housing? How can we give them the tools, the mindset, the confidence? the network, the relationships, whatever it is that they need um, to be able to get out of affordable housing, empower them to be able to do that. Uh, that is a big, big part of our why, uh, because we don't want to be building affordable housing for families that will stay there for generation after generation. We Really, the goal of Holiday Ventures is to think massively, think big, and think about how can we like totally erase the cycle of like family generational poverty and living in affordable housing over and over again. Uh, so that's that's really a big part of our why. But I think it all boils down to I was lucky I had great parents who taught me how to uh, really taught me how to love others. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. There's like a million questions now. I'm like, this is <laughs> there's so many things here that I want. I because I I, ha, I yeah I have not had another guest who has been in the affordable housing space. So I think that that's. Um, it'll be really cool. I, I some specific questions about that, but obviously it's, it's, uh, it's very mission driven, um, and, you know, impact giving back all of that. So uh, very, very, very cool. But also, also, I just love development. I think, um, it's something that for myself that I ultimately would really probably like to end up in that space. Just, I like building new, like I just, I, you know, yeah. from, from a, I like to see it from start to finish, like value add is cool, but, but really I want to like, he, like you said, like, yeah, let's look at it from a holistic approach. So I, I think, um, 
uh, now I'm even more excited about this. Um, <laughs> but first, but first, it's funny because you know mo- most of the people, and I know you have a podcast. Like most of the guests, it's like, oh, I was what? Like I'm a veterinary surgeon. Like people are other things, and then they come into the real estate space. But yeah. but not you. I mean, you're you're actually unique in the sense that you sort of just this is what you did coming out. I mean, I, I don't know that you you probably had little jobs before that, but like in terms of what am I going to do with my life? I mean, you started it at a, at a young age in, you know, sort of connecting with this developer at college. So that's, um, I mean, call it, you can call it fortuitous, lucky, but it wasn't because you, you, you saw something you were excited about. You, you said that to a mentor, like people in this space always talk about, make sure you always talk, you know, talk to everybody about what you're doing. Let them, and it's yeah, like, exactly. just, and you could expand that to ask the questions right yeah. like that's super cool who's doing that how you know how could i be around something like that and it's it's sometimes as simple as that and i know it's it wasn't that simple i'm sure there's a lot more that went into but but in reality like asking that first question yeah get got you there right it got you started and you find and you did you know you you went and learned the business so um i think that's super cool and, and also like i said a unique to um most of us, myself included, like did something else, you know, you maybe, maybe had some, I feel like a lot of people have parents that were in it or whatever it is. Like there's some yeah. other background connection, but um, very cool that you kind of got there early. Would you mind just talking a little bit about like, you know, you said you learned soup to nuts, A to Z, that, that cut. What does that mean? Like tell, tell people, you know, I, obviously you could talk about this, I'm sure for hours yeah. or days, but like when you say that, I think people picture, okay, you're buying a piece of land and building apartments on it, right? There's that, like that, that's, that's probably to a lot of people, that's as deep as you can yeah. think about it, but, but that's certainly not it. And probably not even the hardest part, like maybe just talk through the process a little bit so people understand what, what that Yeah, means. most definitely. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up in, in real quick, Going back to what you said previously, I completely agree. I think you always have to talk about what you're doing, be open about what you're doing, be open about your goals. Uh, and I think the more you put it out into the universe, the more it's going to come back to you. Uh, and so I, I was, there was definitely a huge amount of luck involved with my mentor having that relationship already, but it didn't just immediately lend to a job. I had to then, you know, he helped open the door, but I had to push my way through the door. Um, but I think that you're exactly right. I think putting yourself in those opportunities is is really where the magic happens and you get to find your why and you get to find your purpose. Um, and, and then answering your question about the development process, uh, it's it's really is like it's such a complex. It's like a living organism. It's like every yeah. every deal is so different, too. But really, I like to boil it down to a couple of different principles um one i think really our job is really just being consummate project managers um and really i think to be a good developer you have to know how to like see the day to day like what needs to be done today but also what needs to be done high level over the next two year life cycle of a deal and that's really and backing up a little bit typically you're your cycle, your timeline of a deal from the time you get a site under contract to the time you close on it, meaning like close on the land, close on your financing, starting construction, that's typically about a two-year process. Uh, And then from the time you start construction to the time you 
move in your first resident, and really, let's just call it 100% construction completion, is about two years now. It used to be a year and a half. COVID and pandemic have really pushed yeah. that out to two years. So, and then from the time you start leasing to the time you start, um, you're 100% occupied and you're on your permanent financing. Uh, that's a, another year to lease up the property. So really, uh, your full timeline of a project from idea to 100% leased up is about a five-year life cycle. And so the majority of our work on the development side is from that zero to two-year mark. Uh, and that's really where the deal is put together. And really, once you finance it, there's still some risk through construction and you have to manage the construction process. You have to manage the lease up. Um, but really, the vast majority of the work is on the front end. Uh, and so really, we, from start to finish, our goal is to uh, manage risk and manage capital um, uh, accurately, or what's the right word, adequately. Really, our, our goal is to be um, spending as little capital as possible while finding out as much information as we can as possible. And so we're basically, I think of it as like different stages of decision making. And so each, you know, before we even put a site under contract, we are running the financials, we're running a pro forma, we're running a hypothetical scenario of, hey, how many units do you think we can get on 10 acres? You know, rule of thumb says it's 20 units an acre. So, uh, and if we need parking, you know, if it's flat, you can get more units. If it's hilly, less so. Uh, so we look at all the variables of the site, the zoning, the location, the entrances. We, we take all that into account. We do a very rough estimate, a conservative rough estimate of saying, hey, 200 units can fit on the site. And what's our ideal unit mix? We put that in, we put in all of our variables and we try to be as conservative as possible. We know that it's going to take probably a year and a half to two years. So we look at you know very conservative interest rates on our loans. We really just look at everything as high as we possibly can and say, hey, does the deal still work after all of these variables are pushed up to the max? If it does, then that's when we pull the trigger and we put it under contract and negotiate with the seller. From there, then we we really go into, again, spending as little money as possible while trying to find out as much information as we can about the site, the zoning, the location, the politics. The local politics are a huge piece of yeah. at least what we do. If you want to rezone something, you pretty much always have to have council member and community support. Uh, and nowadays, most of the zoned land is already picked over. So you really, a lot of the development sites we're looking at, we have to rezone to multifamily or excuse me, or commercial or mixed use. So that's a big part of it is before we spend a dollar, I go to make sure I have a meeting with the council member to make sure they are on board that they support or, and also just see if they have any ideas or see if they have any vision for this site. I usually try not to say, hey, this is what we're going to do and you're going to take it or leave it. Yeah. I say, hey, what do you want to see here? What, you know, this is ultimately your community and this is ultimately going to be you know, your neighbors that are living in this development that we're going to build. So what do you want to see here? Um, and then once we gain their blessing, that's when we start spending money. You know, we figure out the environmental on the site. We figure out the soil. We figure out, we get a survey done. If there's any wetlands, we figure that out. So really focus in on the third party reports. Uh, and then there, it's really just figuring out like, again, you know, little by little, talk to your partners, you know, figuring out where your financing is going to come from. You talk to banks. Uh, we do a lot of uh, tax credit financing to help pay for the development. The government helps provide tax credits. We sell those credits to investors, and then they give us cash that helps pay for roughly 40% of our development costs. 
so we typically were making sure our development aligns with the goals and, and basically the scoring criteria for tax credits. Um, so we're closely aligning with that when we do our site selection. We have constant conversations with our financing teams, our tax credit council, making sure our development falls within the rules and the guidelines of tax credit financing. Uh, and then we talk to property management, we talk to our GC, we talk to architects and engineers, make sure our design works, make sure the or make sure the design matches the cost. So we talk to the GC to constantly get pricing. And it's really just an iterative process where we're constantly talking to all the different partners, just trying to figure out as much information we can while spending as little money as we can. And really once, once you get to a certain point, there's different milestones, but once you get the property rezoned, once you get the financing approved by the state agency and once you have your plans into permits, that's really when you've decided like, hey, we're moving full steam ahead on this thing and we're going to be start to spend real money. So that's typically the last, call it eight to 12 months of a project. That's when you spend the vast majority of your, your money and that's when you're really committed to the project uh, and you believe that, you know, barring massive unforeseen, unforeseen circumstances, you will close that deal. Um, but that is really, you know, I, I think of it as like a, as a, as a line graph and, and over the two year cycle and you're spending, you know, trying to stay as flat as you can on spending money. And then all of a sudden it's like a, a hockey stick curve at the very last, like six to eight months, it really like pops up. Uh, Cause that's when you're committed to the project and you spend the big money. And over that timeline, we'll typically spend about two to two and a half million dollars. Um, we try not to buy any land before we really are ready to move dirt and, and yeah. break ground. Uh, again, for that same reason, we're trying to take as little risk as we can while and spend as little money as we can before we need to. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to me. I think the, probably the majority of people, what they think when they think of development, they're actually thinking about those middle two years. Right. They like they see a building. Right. There's something to actually go right. up. They, they're they don't realize that you've already spent two years working on that, getting to the point right. of ready exactly. to build. They also don't realize that after there's a building in place, people don't magically just show up and live in it like there's there's yeah. more work to be done then. So it's a it's interesting, you know, kind of to, to hear about all those parts. And, and I think, you know, you you sort of said it nonchalantly but i think another thing people don't realize like if you're spending two two and a half million dollars essentially to get to the point where you've you've committed to building this building like there's a lot of risk in these deals yeah. on your part and your partners in up front right so it's like they're they're if you go all that i mean it can happen in any real estate deal you can lose money in in you know sort of your due diligence period but like that's a long due diligence period yeah, and a lot of exactly. money kind of over that amount. So so seems like it's, I don't know if you would say that the risk is higher for you kind of in the beginning than people doing whatever, a value add multifamily or something like that, where there's already, it's already a building, right? You know, you know, it's yeah. there, you know, it can be there. You have to figure out and as you mentioned, likely change the the zoning so that, that a building can be there. So it, it's, it's kind of sounds like that's a, heavy front loaded risk i would i would say would you would you agree yeah yeah most definitely i think that's why we really try to especially on the front end like we won't spend a dollar until i know we can get rezoning and political support because mm -hmm. i know without that your deal is you know dead on arrival 
Um, and so there's certain key things that we've learned over the years that, you know, certain um, variables that you need to get figured out before you spend more money, uh, because they are ultimately the ones that decide the fate of your development. And I think that's what we always try to do is basically we'll spend the initial, you know, first couple hundred thousand dollars of our own capital to pursue, basically pursue costs of development. Uh, and we do that because that is the riskiest capital. But as you learn more information, as you spend more money, your risk goes down as well because you're learning more variables. You're learning more about the site. You're getting more political support. You're getting financial support, whatever it is. Um, and the and the momentum behind your project starts building. Uh, and that's when we we bring in our investors and they help us raise the the remaining two to two and a half million dollars to get us over the finish line. Um, but we we basically we only bring in investors until we like at the point we know, hey, this is actually a real thing and it's 98% chance this is moving forward. Uh, but you are right. Compared to a value add deal, compared to any acquisition deal, it is significantly more risky. But if you're able to figure out and navigate how to manage that risk well, um, then you're able to basically build something brand new that will be one of the newest products, you know, for the next 15 to 20 years. Um, and the way we do it, it's affordable. So we're basically providing something that in a lot of places and a lot of markets are like 100% below market rents for a comparable new construction in the same area. Um, so that's just, it's kind of mind blowing that it's even gotten to that point, but it just shows you like, we will have inherently we'll have just built in demand for residents for the next 15 to 20 years, at least, um, because of the rent points and the quality that we're building at. Right. Right. Do you, so I guess one, one thing you mentioned before, like I have a lot of questions, but you had said, uh, you're doing a lot of mixed use. Is that is, is there a reason for that? Like, is that a way to sort of diversify within the building? Like, wh why would you choose to do mixed use? Obviously, I assume like the, the commercials or the, yeah, the retail space in these mixed use buildings, it, you're not, that's not affordable housing, right? So maybe you make up yep. some of that, you know, income. I, I'm not sure. Why would you yeah, specifically uh, that's choose a good question. that? Yeah, it's it doesn't doesn't have to do with revenue. It really just for us has to do with quality design and, and intentional development. Um, going back to what we were talking about earlier, we we just believe that if we can put retailers in there, um, if we can put community services in there, uh, then ultimately that's a benefit for our residents. So they love where they live, and hopefully it provides you know positive services and or positive places to meet other people and connect with others. Uh, and it really gives them more community feel rather than just a multifamily setting. Um, and we we typically, honestly, the way we do our underwriting is we try to build in some form of commercial retail with no income underwritten from that retail or commercial space. That way we can really offer below market rent. Um, and that way we can help encourage, uh, you know, if it's if it's not yet a retail location at that time, then we can help it become a retail location by offering below market rents. Okay, that makes sense. And so, I mean, it's a, I guess a a resident experience experience type of reason behind exactly, that. Okay. exactly. Yeah, it really okay. goes back to the resident empowerment for us. Excellent, excellent. Um, another thing you talked about, and, I, and I've definitely heard this from other people I know that have done some development, but the relationships with the local, essentially the local government, 
uh, you know, councilmen and, and things like that. I mean, it, nobody wants <laughs> nobody wants the county or the city on their bad side in in any you know sort of real estate commercial real estate type of venture. But right. I imagine it's especially important here when you're looking to you're looking to rezone and all of that. So my my question, I think, really, what I'm what I'm maybe getting towards is, what do you, what markets are you focused in? Are you local to those markets? Do you think that helps you? I guess I'll start start with that sort of line of questioning. Yeah. So we currently are focused in on uh, Nashville, Natural Metro, um, but we're currently also looking in Texas and South Carolina and Georgia, um, and so. Nashville specifically, yes, it it has a huge advantage to us to being in the market, um, especially over the last I've been here, been working here um, since 2014 and have lived here for the past, I think, I think five years now. Um, So that makes a huge difference. It's just, you know, you're a local, you have relationships, you have built in rapport, uh, that goes a huge distance. And then the other markets that we're working in now that we're looking at new developments in, it really comes down, it always just comes down to relationships. Um, typically, it will come from uh, somebody that I've met over my years of networking with real estate people or impact-driven leaders. Um, and somebody will reach out to me and say, hey, Evan, you know, I live in X city in Texas, and I'd love to figure out how to build affordable housing or bring affordable housing to my city. We really need it. And I have relationships with city leadership. Well, to us, that like immediately moves up to the top of the list of like potential deals and potential cities for us to to look at. Because one of the hardest things about our job has been education of why cities need affordable housing for both community standpoint and the economic standpoint. Um, and, And so anytime we can lower that barrier to entry of saying, hey, city already gets it. They know the need. I don't have to explain it. I don't have to educate um, that. And I have a warm introduction and we all really, you know, a referral goes so much further than a cold introduction. Sure. So anytime we can find that where it aligns with our interests, it aligns with the city's interests. Um, that's always where we try to go as far as pursuing development. Uh, and then of course, really the, the South is seeing so much explosive growth right now. And that of course, exacerbates the need for affordable housing. Uh, so that's also why we're looking in those states. Yeah. I mean, certainly, and you made this point before, but I mean, certainly inherently, you're going to have a lot of demand. There's no, yeah. like, no doubt that that'll be, uh, you won't have trouble, you know, sort of leasing this up. And I, and I, yeah. so then that, that I guess brings to, to mind, how do you, as the developers, how do you make this profitable? Right. Because I guess just to, you know, for the listener, like, Generally, a lot of these, you know, essentially commercial real estate is valued based on what you're achieving for rents. Right. Right. So if you're building to essentially know you're achieving less rent than you could in another right. in another part, how do you how do you balance that? And I, like I get it, like the the community impact, all of that. It's phenomenal right. to have a cause, but like at the end of the day, you can't keep doing it if you're not somehow right. making it. You gotta, you making gotta make money at the end of the day. Right. So how, um, how does that, I know tax credits help, like kind of how does that maybe come together again at a high level? I, I'm sure there's a ton of stuff that goes into it. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. That's a great question. So really it boils down to, uh, like you just said, the tax credits cover 40% of our development costs. 
Uh, and so in essence, we are, we're selling those credits. We're getting 40% of our costs covered day one by outside equity. Uh, and all that outside equity partner wants in return is the tax credits. They want the tax credits, the losses, and the depreciation. Um, so if you're a, if you're an LP or if you're involved in a syndication, you typically get like your share of right. investment and ownership. You get that return and losses as well. Uh, and so in our relationship with our investor, they get 100% of the losses, 100% of the depreciation, and 100% of the tax credits, and uh, and that's all they want. So you know. It's a bummer we don't get the losses and appreciation because that's a great benefit of commercial real estate. But also at the end of the day, they really don't want any of the upside and they don't want any of the cash flow or any of the fee. Um, and so that's really where the benefit is for a, a GP, a partner uh, that puts together developments like we do is you basically, you can, if you underwrite the deal well, you can potentially get into a deal, you know, you'll be reimbursed your pre-development costs and then you won't have to put any of your own money into the deal at that point. Uh, so you won't have any capital in it. And then you can typically, it depends on the state, you can get a 10 to 15% developer fee um, from the deal. And then you'll get 90% of the cash flow after that. Um, and so it's it's really, it's a different type of model where yeah. our investor doesn't want cash flow. They don't want returns. They're not shooting for you know 15% IRR. They're just shooting for a return on their capital in the form of tax credits, losses, and depreciation. So we basically get everything else outside of that. Um, and that is really our incentive. So it's typically a much higher developer fee than a market rate deal. Um, it's typically lower cash flow, um, but higher fee. Uh, and then also the back end after 15 years, you can buy out your tax credit investor for a, a nominal amount, uh, and then you will own the, the project hundred percent. Okay. That, I mean, it's a, it's a very different strategy than sort of yeah. most of what, and, and obviously then you have to have, you know, sort of a, a specific investor pool in that, right. like so many people are always talking about, you know, oh, you, you should, you should get in deals for cash flow. You should get in deals for cash flow. And I sort of, I get it. I get why a lot of people say that, but I, I actually think that's what, what you really need to know is, is what your investment like what do you need to get out of the investment first for some yes. people that's cash flow but but obviously for the people investing in your deals what they need is is tax advantages essentially and so yeah you just have to find the the right um kind of investor pool yeah that's a great point and the other thing i would add is our investors are actually typically banks um because okay. banks are required there's community reinvestment act of 1986 that basically said banks couldn't redline um, lower income neighborhoods. And they actually have to, each bank now, I think it's annual or biannual, they get a, a CRA score. Uh, and that CRA score is based on how much they are investing in affordable communities. You know, they can open branches, they can invest through tax credits, they can, you know, do uh, donations or do um, philanthropic events, different things like that. But banks have to be investing in every part of a the neighborhood. They cannot redline. And so they get, most banks get a significant amount of their CRA score from investing in tax credits for affordable housing. Uh, and so majority of our investors are banks. So they get the CRA score and they get the losses and depreciation and the credits, which they can offset their income from other, other parts of the bank. And this kind of sounds like a phenomenal model now. Like it, 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 it's just a, it, it's just a, 
almost like a win all around because I, I think that, you know, as you said, you're, you're creating first and foremost, like creating this, this product that really has a need in a lot of the cities. Like a lot of the, a lot of people are getting priced out of, of their apartments because of the, yeah, the rapid exactly. pace of rent growth. And so, and then you're creating, so there there's affordable housing, you're creating sort of a residential experience for them. And then on, on your end, now you've got almost like the perfect partnership where they, I guess that means you don't get the tax benefits, but at the same time, like you're getting everything else, right? So it's kind of, uh, it, it's just a win. I think it's a win all around, right? It's a win for those banks, get what they need. You're getting what you need. In the, and then right. of course the tenants are getting um, a quality brand new product with, you know, kind of with, with affordable rents, which is, which is fantastic. Um, wh- when you, I know you said after 15 years, you can kind of, buy out those um tax credit investors how so what is your exit plan for these types of deals what do you you know so we know what that first 5 years looks like with you know sort of getting it getting it ready doing the construction and then the lease up and then at i you know once it's stabilized i assume that's kind of the maybe the easy part but when do you what is your exit plan for these or these things you're trying to hold forever how do you how do you manage that yeah, that's a good question. Um, everything affordable, our goal is long-term ownership. Um, and really our goal is, you know, with 15 year initial compliance period, but really states have added on a, another 15 years and some states like California, I think it's now like 50 years total, uh, Tennessee, where most of our deals are is just 30 total, but at the end of 30 years, we could look at other options, but really our mission and our passion is affordable yeah. housing. So what we, what we will do is at that point, at some point, whenever the project needs a good rehab um, and, a, and an update, then we'll take it back into the tax credit program. Uh, and you can get tax credits to help pay for 40% of the rehab costs. And you just basically sign up for another 30 years of affordability. Uh, and that's really what we see being able to create long-term affordability uh, and have that impact is really part of our mission. If it's market rate, we do some market rate development as well. Uh, we'll typically build those, stabilize those, and then sell those assets um, to long-term holders unless unless it's just a really core asset in a great location. Um, our goal really is on the affordable side. So we're honestly, part of our doing the market rate is to help feed the affordable business. Right, right. I mean, it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, it It really does seem like, it's hard to find I, no, no business is perfect, but it's hard to find like a real <laughs> downside to this. Right. In, in, especially with your, and maybe, maybe you do have something like yeah. you can point out some things there, but like <laughs> the, if, if you kind of lump it all together, the, the impact that you're having along with, you know, some of these, these uh, benefits to you as the, as the developer and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely would, you know, and full transparency, there are definitely downsides or challenges, as I would call it, um, to the business. I, I think really the the big couple that I can immediately think of are just there's a lot of red tape, there's a lot of bureaucracy, there's a lot of you know, uh, you know, you at times you really just want to pull your hair out because you're going through all these, you know, jumping through all these hoops to get the funding to make sure it matches. You know, there's tax exempt bonds, there's tax credits. Right. 
there's all these rules and, and, you know, huge rule books that you have to follow to get that funding. <laughs> yeah. And also there's, you have to jump through all the hoops to even get it in the first place. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, a lot of brain damage you have to be willing to go through, I'd say, in order to be able to, to do this affordable development. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. You really have to like, just love it. Um, but it is also, it's fun because it's, it's like creative financing. Like we just do, we, re, we really do some really fun, creative ways of structuring our deals. And sometimes you have to do that just to be able to get the deal done, um, because you are dealing sometimes with limited resources. Um, so I think that's the exciting part, but also one of the most challenging parts about this. And I would say just, you know, community sentiment around affordable housing hasn't always been the greatest. Uh, I was actually just telling somebody this morning that I really think it we're shifting in the last, really just the last couple of weeks I've noticed, you know, having been in affordable for, I guess the last like 11 years I've seen, you know, from when I first got started, every, like nobody wanted to talk to me and everybody hated affordable. They're like, get the heck out of my town. And, you know, we don't need the ghetto. And, you know, they, they just had yeah. all these negative stigmas around affordable. And now I kid you not, neighbors are now telling me like, hey, we love this. Could you actually make it more affordable? And I was like, wow, I've never heard that before. Like most times people are saying, you know, don't bring the the terrible affordable housing in my backyard. Now everybody's like, could you bring more of that? That'd be great. <laughs> and I'm just like, That's wow, good. like this is game changing. Like I think, I think there's still a lot of communities that don't feel like that, but it's just amazing to see that communities are now like flipping their mindset about affordable. And I think yeah. too, it's because we're building like quality affordable housing today, not just us, but a lot of developers out there are building really quality communities that are totally um, like you, you'd look side by side at a market rate or affordable. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. They look the exact same. They act the exact same. And so I think that's the really powerful piece is we're no longer building the, you know, the 1960s barrack style public housing. We're building quality stuff and, and really being able to help the residents. And people notice that and they're like, oh, wait a second. Now we need a ton of it. And that we have this massive like housing crisis. Sorry about that. Uh, we have this massive housing crisis. I'll say it one more time. Hold on. Hopefully this can be edited out. <laughs> um, so we have this massive housing crisis that now every city across the country is like, hey, how can we get some more of that affordable housing? And like, hey, Evan, can you come to our town and bring as much affordable housing as you possibly can? Um, so I think that's a promising sign. I don't think we're like all the way over yet, but right. uh, I think that's really promising. I think. The other challenge, though, is now like every other developer and every other real estate investor, we have rising interest rates, we have rising labor costs, we have rising material costs, and on the development side, we have rising land costs. So you have all these variables that are going up, and our rents are going up, but not nearly as much as a market rate developer because they're capped, and they only go up once a year, and it's only like a set percent. So that's really one of the been one of our bottlenecks has been, you know, how do we pay for all these rising costs? without also, you know, with staying within our income limits and our, and our rent limits. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. And that's probably what maybe the gist of what I was getting at before in terms of how do you do this and also still make knowing, knowing what's happening, you know, on our value add deals, just like, yeah, what, what, you know, a year ago might cost you 
six or eight thousand to renovate a unit, and now it's twelve or fifteen thousand, and it's just it yeah. has changed very dramatically. And so I, I, you know, I imagine in in a lot of cases on these market rate deals, as you mentioned, like okay, well now our rents have to be whatever you know whatever they have to go up to to kind of match that. But if you're if you're capped, then that that creates a significant problem unless unless someone creates a program for affordable housing supplies or you know what i mean like some some way to uh in a similar in a similar manner keep the the materials that have to go to these things you know down like they do for you with tax credits whatever it is like yeah hey, here's a here's a you know hey home depot whatever however you want to say whatever the that wherever the materials are coming, but, you know, we'll give you tax credits to help supply these. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Thinking further down the supply chain. Um, yeah. I think, I think really the two biggest things I can think of are if cities would allow by right, more dense zoning mm-hmm. along major corridors and major transportation corridors for specifically for affordable housing, ideally. But I mean, really, if you just give more rights, to landowners along corridors to build any sort of dense um, mixed use or even just market rate multifamily. The more units, the better it is for the market because it's just supply and demand. And also lowering parking requirements is a huge one, at least along major transportation corridors. And uh, last one I would say is, um, oh shoot, now like completely went from my head. Um, I don't know, it'll come back to me, but there's, there's, I mean, there's many different things that could be done. Um, but it is, um, yeah, I just, I think there's, there's tools that could be done. I think it just takes massive political effort, um, to be able to get those things done. Yeah. Shifting, (laughs) shifting government, uh, at whatever level is, is not a, not no easy task. Yeah. Um, oh man, it's, it's very cool though. Well, let, let's, uh, let's shift gears actually just, I don't want to keep you all day. I, this stuff is very fascinating to me, but, um, (laughs) We'll we'll kind of get to the part of the show where I ask you the questions that I get, like to ask every guest. Um, yeah. The first one you touched on a lot. Uh, this show is called Know Your Why. I ask every guest kind of what is your why, and, and you went into that in the beginning. I just wanted to, you know, kind of give you the opportunity if there's if there's anything you want to add there um, to to kind of expand upon it. Uh, that, that yeah, I think um, just in a nutshell, I think uh, I was very blessed with loving parents, and they taught me to love others, and I think maybe as a good reminder to all the parents out there is, you know, remember that you're the words you say and the messages you share with your kids, they do remember them and it stays with them for the rest of their lives. And it usually has a massive impact on, on what they do and the way they see the world. (laughs) Yeah. It's I have young kids and it is shocking how much they pick up. You just, you have to be very careful and and be sure to lead by example for sure. Yeah. Um, Second question is what, uh, What's something about yourself that that maybe isn't common knowledge, special skill, a hobby, and anything you're comfortable sharing just to let people know you a little better? Yeah, um, probably two of my favorite things to do. Uh, they're both newer activities for me, but I I just love them so much. Um, downhill mountain biking okay. and uh, wake surfing. So those are two of my favorite things to do. We just recently came back from a trip from Bozeman. We went downhill mountain biking at Big Sky, and it was. It's just so much fun. You go so fast. And anyways, yeah, those are, those are my two things. That sounds terrifying. I like wake surfing, but yes, the downhill mountain yeah. biking sounds terrifying to me. That's a, that's a very high speed to be, 
shooting down a mountain with with no snow to cushion your to cushion your fall if it happens um super cool um when people hear this and they want to reach out to you evan what's the what's the best way and put whatever you want in the show notes yeah um i would say check us out on instagram at evan holiday holiday is h-o-l-l-a-d-a-y and our website if you're interested in learning more about uh what we do and also if you're interested in investing it's holidayventures.com Awesome. Okay. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, my final question for you is what piece of advice would you give to someone who's getting started? And you you don't have to, you know, have to necessarily say in development, although, you know, that seems to be your, your uh, obvious area of expertise, but just kind of getting started wanting to invest in real estate. What would you, what would you tell them? I would say be confident in yourself and in your abilities and find mentors who align with your why and your goals, uh, and, and do whatever you can to bring value to them, um, in any way you possibly can. Like my first opportunity came from bringing, uh, basically they asked me to bring out people to their groundbreaking. And I said, okay. So I got a bunch of my buddies in my fraternity to help pass out flyers. Uh, and they ended up, I think getting over 200 people at their groundbreaking. Uh, And that's what helped me get the job. Um, and so I think doing whatever you can with no expectation in return, uh, trying to bring value to mentors, that's how you will align yourself with mentors. Yeah, makes total sense. Uh, and I, and I think it's certainly a common theme, just figuring out a way to bring value to others without, without that expectation. It's not, it's not a transaction. It's a, it's a true, uh, you know, right. Just wanting to be wanting to, to, you know, be there and be a part of it in, in whatever capacity that that takes. So yeah, super cool. Um, I love, I love this conversation. Like I said, I, th- this stuff is super fascinating to me. So thank you, Evan, for coming on today. I really appreciate yeah. you. Taking Thanks for time. having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and everyone listening, uh, if you like this, which I'm sure you will, this was very, very interesting, but, uh, please, um, like rate and review, and that way we can get this out to more people. All right. Have a great day all. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.